My name is Griff Stockley, and for the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm interviewing Dr. John Kirk, who is the George W. Donaghy Distinguished Professor of History and Director of the Joel E. Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. John, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background. When people hear you speak, they're going to know you're not from South Arkansas. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in uh, England. Not England, Arkansas, but England as in the United Kingdom. I grew up in the northwest of England, uh, near Manchester, which is the largest city of about half a million people, um, and a village called Whitworth, which is about 15 miles away. It had about 9,000 people in it, fairly rural, right on the edges of uh, Greater Manchester and the kind of urban sprawl away from there. So I grew up in a fairly small place. And how old are you? I mean, would you give us some context uh, for when you grew up? Yeah, I was born in 1970, so I was kind of growing up and becoming conscious of the world around me in sort of the late 1970s, growing up as a teenager in the 1980s, so around that time. Okay, and what about your family? Can you tell us about your grandparents and your parents, what they did and how you grew up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my grandparents, um, well, my uh, on my paternal side, uh, my grandfather uh, fought in World War I um, and went away to war and lost two of his brothers in the war and came back wounded. Uh, and was fairly old, older when he had my uh, father. Um, so, um, you know, was kind of an, an older dad. Uh, on my mom's side, uh, the family came from not that far away from us, about five, six miles away in another town. And um, she, uh, her father was a fireman. And, um, you know, they uh, both, I was the first person in our family to go to college, some first generation college graduate. They both had high school educations, but left school soon after they went to high school and uh, met one another in a carpet factory. In fact, both working there, and that's how they met. And later on, my dad worked for most of his life as a construction worker, and my mom raised me and my younger brother, who's uh, four years younger than I am. And what was life like for you in the in the 1970s? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it was a time of uh, austerity, I guess, um, you know, um, and throughout the 70s and particularly the 1980s, later on, um, my dad spent large parts of time unemployed. The economy wasn't particularly good. And I guess, you know, Rochdale was very much like a, um, which is the nearest town to us, about three miles away, it was pretty much like uh, a Rust Belt city you would have in the United States, kind of post-industrial place. The uh, entire Northwest had been dominated by the cotton industry and textiles and, uh, you know, had been the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And by that time, the Industrial Revolution was over and it was on the opposite end of that. And it was deindustrializing pretty rapidly and going through lots of rapid changes, including changes in, uh, in its demographics as well. You know, Britain and, and Rochdale was starting to experience uh, a growth of uh, non-white population, particularly coming from the British Commonwealth, particularly growth in the Pakistani population. I remember, you know, the 1970s was a time of growing immigration, growing diversity in the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, the one of the landmark pieces of legislation in terms of race and ethnicity was the 1976 Race Relations Act, which sort of came about 10 years after the main legislation in the United States. And here you have the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act. So Britain was about 10 years behind in that. So that was happening just at the time when I was becoming, you know, more conscious of the world around me. Okay. And your family, how did they identify themselves politically? What and and religiously too. Just yeah, I my dad was you know but both my parents were sort of working class labor supporters. What I guess would translate to in the United States as blue collar Democrats, um, typical with a sort of Rust Belt experience. And growing up, I was raised in the Church of England. I guess what's the you know closest uh, to the Episcopal Church here. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I went to Sunday school. My mom particularly, you know, took us to Sunday school, a church that was uh, close by us, but, you know, kind of benignly religious family, not, uh, you know, it was something that people did, went to church then, and I attempted to church, but not, you know, not kind of, yeah. And socially, what what was it like in England? What, what, was this an era of mini skirts, or I mean, would you have an image of England as kind of being uh, pretty progressive in in some ways? What 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 was it like socially for you? Um, yeah, I, and it was a time of change. I think when I grew up, you know, um, for me, it was a time of change in music because that was the era that punk rock was really kind of, you know, starting when I, you know, 76, 77, I was six, seven years old. So begin to come conscious of the world around me. Punk rock was starting. Uh, I think there's a new wave, a new generation of young people who were different, doing different kinds of things, you know, indie new wave stuff was coming out. And that's the context I grew up in. And that was a kind of interesting race relations context to grow up in as well. You know, I think there was a good deal of polarization at the time. You know, there was a very conservative uh, racial kind of environment. You know, it was the time of the National Front, fascist organization and skinheads. And, you know, there was racial tensions. But at the same time, I think the time I grew up, the kind of punk rock era and the new wave and indie bands that came after it very much had a backlash to that as well. And, you know, there was a strong uh, anti-racist sentiment and a strong influence of... Afro-Caribbean culture in a lot of that, which I was very much aware of too. So, you know, I think it was pretty racially polarized and becoming racially conscious in the in the 70s and 80s at the time I was growing up. Okay. We were talking before we started the interview that uh, there was a Pakistani family uh, that bought a house across the street from you. Would you talk about that? Yeah, uh, you know, when I was growing up, Whitworth uh, was on the very fringes of the urban areas, and most of the immigration took part in the more urban areas. And I grew up in a largely all-white town. You know, there was no diversity at all. Um, and I remember the first uh, non-white family moving into uh, the village because they happened to move in directly across from where we lived. So they were right across the road from where we were and you know it was kind of issues of race and ethnicity were brought right to my doorstep as it were you know almost literally uh so it was the first pakistani family to move in and uh you know looking back i guess that was pretty significant in the way that i thought about race and ethnicity I mean, it was my first experience of that and particularly you know the way that my parents responded to that i think conditioned as it does at that age the way that you contextualize the world around you, the way, the way that you deal with things. And, you know, interestingly, there's all kinds of ways, I guess, that my parents could have responded to that set of circumstances. Well, how did they respond? Uh, they responded uh, simply by treating them the same as they would any other neighbor. You know, it was just, I guess, some kind of form of colorblindness. You know, they, they had a sort of, you know, uh, I guess, working class, religious sense of decency and, you know, just came at it from the approach that uh, they were just people like any other people and deserved to be treated like any other people. And, you know, they could have been hostile to them, but they weren't. They didn't necessarily, I don't think, go out of their way to be particularly friendly to them. But, you know, a kind of relationship developed with them. They interacted with them. I remember my brother, um, <laughs> four years younger than I was, uh, they had a child about the same age, and they played together. I remember my brother uh, being invited along to uh, the birthday party, and th this family owned a curry place, probably one of the first curry places in Rochdale. And my brother kind of going to a birthday party there and eating Indian food for the first time, which was really exotic. I remember we were quizzing him when we got home about what it was like and what it was like to be there and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and and... They certainly experienced discrimination while they were there. Uh, another memory I have of that time is that just uh, we lived across from them and just behind them was a working men's club, which was a sort of cornerstone of working class culture at the time, a private club where members pay money and they got cheaper beer and they had acts come in and, you know, it's kind of a social club. 
I remember that, you know, that they wouldn't allow our neighbor to join and it was clear that he was barred from being there and he wasn't welcome there. I remember uh, one night, I guess, you know, our neighbor was a smoker and wanted to buy a cig pack of cigarettes from the working men's club and they wouldn't sell them to him. You know, they wouldn't serve him, refused him service. And so he came over and asked my dad to go over and buy them for him. And my dad went over, bought cigarettes and came back and gave them to him. So, you know, it's uh, I, it certainly experienced discrimination. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting the way that my parents behaved and the way that almost probably, probably more significant, the ways that they didn't behave was more significant than the ways that they did. They just didn't act as if it was an odd thing, which, you know, I guess in many ways it was. Okay. All right. In junior high and high school, did you go to a public school or what What was the school like? Yeah, I went to public schools all the way through. I went to uh, what they call an infant school, which I guess is similar to elementary. Then I went to a middle school. Then I went to high school because high school there is 11 to uh, 16 years old. You finish school when you're 16. And there are all local high schools that I walked to, uh, all, all local schools that I walked to. Um, yeah, and grew up there, and, and you know, all the schools reflected their place. There's hardly any diversity whatsoever. I think in the high school that I went to, there's probably, I can remember, just one person of color being there. So it's, you know, pretty white, homogenous um, place to, to grow up. I guess, you know, class um, more than race were the dividing lines, and, you know, I grew up on a uh, public housing estate, um, and we didn't own our house. We, we've always rented a house. My, my parents have never owned that house. They still live in rental accommodation today. So, you know, I grew up in a, in a world of very kind of public world. Public, I lived in public housing, went to public schools, rode public transportation. My parents have never owned a vehicle, still don't drive today. And, you know, I grew up yeah. driving public transportation and still do. I don't drive. Um, in Little Rock today, I ride the buses still, so I, I guess that's a holdover from there as well. <laughs> well, so how when you say public housing, do you mean government-assisted housing, or, or what? What do you mean by that? Uh, government-owned housing that my uh, parents rented. Okay, rented housing that was that was government-owned. In England, had more uh, a socialist context than say the United States, is that, was that kind of part of kind of the background that everybody kind of functioned in, uh, the sense that there was more of a, a commitment toward the public good as opposed to private enterprise or, or what? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think there was, you know, I mean, for example, I guess the best example is the National Health Service. You know, Britain has always had a health service that's, you know, been run by the government and always been free at the point of service. So um, there's much more of a context for that, I guess, yeah, growing up uh, than there is in the United States. Of course, I didn't grow up in the United States, so I don't know. Yeah. the can't ring the differences. And, you know, the more I live here, the more I uh, kind of understand those. Although, you know, I lived through a time in the 1980s when those public services were under pressure and under attack and, you know, privatization was increasingly creeping in. So I was at that cusp of, you know, being raised in that period, but also lived through an era, extended era, an ongoing era, I guess, of privatization. And would any of that, your background influence you when you got to the United States? I mean, how, how did it? I mean, obviously, it would, but let's just kind of pick up when you went to college, where, where'd you go and what did you study? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, after graduating from high school, I went to, uh, as most people do when they go to university, a sixth form college, there, which is kind of like a cross between the last two years of high school here and a community college. So you go and earn qualifications and based on those qualifications determines where you go to university and which university you get into, they're called A-levels. And uh, it was during that period that I became interested in American history. Uh, the headmaster of the school also taught uh, a government politics class. One of, the, one of the A levels I took was in government politics. Half of that was based on American politics. And he was really interested in all things American. And he taught the half that was about American politics. I took a, another qualification in American studies on the back of that. Uh, and he was pretty influential in making me think about the United States and, you know, waking the consciousness about American politics. And that was really my introduction 
and he was influential in choosing which college I went to. I went to uh, Nottingham University and went on to take... Uh, and where is Nottingham? Which is in the Midlands of the, of the United Kingdom, so kind of in the middle of England. And what kind of reputation did it have? Liberal, conservative, or did, does that not apply, or what? Um, fairly liberal at the time, you know. It was a, one of the biggest cities in England, and, you know, fairly urban. Um, the campus was out of town and it had its own kind of large campus so it was kind of insulated in some ways from the, the city at large um, I, I majored in American studies there um, and that continued my interest in the United States the degree that, uh, that I did there in American studies uh, the second semester I was there, I went to the United States, which is the first time I visited the United States, and you know, as a mandatory overseas component as part of that. And I spent uh, six weeks living uh, on campus at Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin. That was the link that they had with them. And then two weeks uh, living in downtown Chicago at Roosevelt University on the back of that. So that was my first experience. Uh, with the United States, first trip to the United States when I was about, what, 19 years old. And what year that would have been? 89. Okay, and do you remember, did any of that have any particular influence on any future decisions or what? Um, I'm not sure it did at that point. You know, I was happy to travel and, um, you know, see something beyond what I'd already seen. I think part of the attraction of doing American studies was just to travel and go somewhere else and mm -hmm. kind of see life beyond the place that I've been to. Again, you know, at the time I was extremely fortunate in that uh, in that sense of, you know, still kind of public largesse. I um, got a free ride through university at the time. Uh, local education authorities paid tuition fees and paid a stipend to go to university. And so, you know, I didn't have to take any loans out to go to university. If I had to do, uh, I may not have gone. My family might not have, you know, my family wouldn't have been able to afford to put me through. And, you know, I may have made different choices. And I was very fortunate to go through with that free ride. And, you know, I think I was the last, one of the last generation, last people to go through with a free ride. I think tuition fees were introduced very soon after I left university. So I was extremely fortunate again, you know, uh, from the public good and from the public purse to have that funded for me to allow me to do those things and go those places that I might not otherwise have had the opportunity to do. Well, so what, you, you went on and graduated uh, in what year from the university in, in England? Uh, 91, graduated in 91, it's three year degree there. And did you write a thesis, or mm -hmm. what, what was your thesis? Yeah, uh, I did a thesis in my final year on uh, William Faulkner and race, which was really the kind of time that you know influenced me in terms of where I'd go in the future and the kind of work that I would do. Um, you know, the, we did, in the American studies degree, we did three strands. One strand was history, one strand was literature, and one strand was thought and culture. Uh, but literature was the thing that I was most interested in at the time. I did a thesis on William Faulkner and, you know, read all of Faulkner's work over an entire summer, but did a thesis that focused really on one short story of Faulkner's that deals centrally with race and race relations. You know, Faulkner writes mostly about Yoknatopa County, which is a county, fictional county in Mississippi, and draws from his experiences there. And it's a fascinating story. It's in the Goldown Moses collection called The Pantaloon in Black. And it's one of the rare stories where Faulkner deals and inhabits, you know, a black character. And the story is this about this black character and what he goes through and a period of trauma. And, uh, you know, he's kind of told from a very kind of empathetic perspective. And then the second shorter part of the story is told, retold again from a white perspective by a white sheriff. And I think what fascinated me about the story and fascinated me about it was how the very different kind of perspectives that those two actors had on the events that happened in the story. And, uh, you know, what fascinated me was that here was a very small place and here were people who shared a very similar culture, a very similar background, very similar experiences, and yet seemed so radically alienated from one another and seemed so 
foreign from one another uh, on the basis of race. So it kind of intrigued me how you could have a small rural place like that that was so homogeneous in so many ways, and yet race was such an alienating, dividing line between how these two characters understood the world between them. And so how did you get to the United States ultimately, for mm. the decision to come here, and did you already have a job? When, or would you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, when, I'd, when I'd finished... Um, my degree at Nottingham, I knew I wanted to go on and do further research and do a PhD. And so I went to the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is in the northeast of England. And, um, you know, I was thinking about various things to do. One of the top civil rights scholars in Britain at the time was Tony Badger, who was based there. And uh, they had a scholarship there. And uh, Tony had bought in materials, and he was working on a project at that time on white liberal southern governors in the south and the so-called GI revolt just after the Second World War. And one of the figures he was focusing on was Sid McMath, Arkansas governor, and he brought in the Arkansas Gazette on microfilm there, and we spoke about various projects that I might do, and he had these materials on Arkansas. And at that time, a lot of um, books were being written about the grassroots civil rights movement in the United States, and people were taking these sort of flashpoints in the civil rights movement that make up the national narrative from Montgomery to Little Rock to Greensboro for the sit-ins to Birmingham, Alabama. And we're looking at those flashpoint events, but putting them in a much longer and deeper perspective of the history of the civil rights movement in the towns that they were in, in the counties, in the states that they were in. And Little Rock was one of those major flashpoint events for Little Rock school crisis that hadn't really been looked at in that way before and hadn't really been examined in its larger context. So we came to agreement to look at that and that'd be the basis of my thesis, writing the long history of the civil rights movement in Arkansas. And I spent a year, first of all, working with the Arkansas Gazette, and then they bought in for me the Arkansas State Press, Desi Bates's paper, the leading black newspaper in the state at the time that ran from, um, um, ran from 41 to 59. And I spent an entire year kind of reading the entire run of the Arkansas State Press from 1959, uh, sorry, from 1941 to 1959, of course, when it was put out of business uh, by the pressures of segregationists after the school crisis. So, you know, I'm maybe one of the uh, few people in the world who've read every copy of the Arkansas State Press, or certainly the only British people who've read yeah, You might want to remind people what, who brought out the Arkansas State Press. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Arkansas, uh, Arkansas State Press was based in Little Rock, and it was owned by Daisy and Elsie Bates, who, of course, became very prominent leaders during the desegregation of Central High School here in 1957, Daisy Bates was president of the state NAACP at the time. And, you know, that was an important thread in understanding the history of the civil rights movement here. And, you know, the newspaper covered a lot of those early events in the history of the civil rights movement from the 19, early 1940s that nobody had really looked at before. And that, you know, the Arkansas State Press formed the context and template for my later research in the United States. So I you know, spent a year reading the secondary stuff and reading the state press in Newcastle on microfilm uh, for a year. And then uh, spent a year living in Little Rock from the summer of 92 to the summer of 1993 doing research here, which turned out to be a pretty uh, fortunate time to be here because of course that was the time that Bill Clinton was running for president the first time. So. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of things happening here in that time. So that sort of formed the backdrop to the research that I was doing in the state as well. So it was pretty, ex pretty exciting time to be. I picked the right time. And p politically, how were you influenced by what was going on with uh, Clinton's run uh, for the White House? Or just politically, how, how did all this play out as a background for your future research? I think I was vaguely aware of it. You know, I was very fixated on my thesis and getting the research done for that. And, you know, it was in the backdrop and, and background to that. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, Clinton being in the running very early when I uh, started my PhD at Newcastle, which was in the fall of, of 1991. And I remember, you know, saying to Tony Badger, wouldn't it be great if, uh, you know, if Clinton did, had a good run, you know, because he's an Arkansan and I'm doing this Arkansas, wouldn't that be coincidence? And he said, no, he's got no chance uh, at that point, you know, and nobody thought he did have 
Um, so yeah, it was kind of a surprise when all that happened, all that unfolded, and he eventually came on and and uh, you know ended up being president. Uh, but yeah, I was mainly you know that was interesting backdrop. But I was mainly focused on getting the research done, and um, you know spent a lot of time doing oral history interviews. Uh, one of the interesting things, is, as you well know, about doing Arkansas history and particularly race relations in Arkansas is that there are very few collected sources here. That's one of the things you come up against is, you know, trying to find the sources. And I had to do a lot more work than I imagined I would. And I came here and exhausted what was in the archives here pretty quickly and realized that I would have to go out and find papers and find private collections and talk to people and do a lot of oral history on the back of it. And also, you know, kind of paradoxically in some ways, spend a lot of time outside of the state doing research. A lot of the civil rights history of Arkansas exists in archives outside of the state. So I traveled and went to Washington, D.C. and looked at the NAACP papers there and the Urban League papers there and the papers of the major civil rights organizations. Uh, spent uh, a few weeks in Madison, Wisconsin, where Daisy Bates' papers are and where the Arkansas Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee papers are. So it was surprising to me that I had to travel out of state so much to get the Arkansas material. Uh, and that, that was kind of curious. But uh, I, one of the best finds that I had at the time, and it's in my early work, was based on uh, William Harold Flowers, uh, who was an attorney in Pine Bluff, and who unfortunately passed away just a year before I got here, just sh shortly before. But I uh, got in touch with his daughter, Stephanie Flowers, who's now, of course, of course uh, um, in the Arkansas General Assembly. And, uh, you know, she was uh, um, moved to Pine Bluff and was looking after her father's collection at the time. And most of his papers were there in his law offices down in Pine Bluff, you know, just as he, he left them. And Stephanie was very kind to me and, and uh, allowed me to use those papers. And I spent several weeks driving down to Pine Bluff um, every day. And she allowed me just to sit at his desk and, you know, all his papers were kind of scattered around and, you know, she had them in boxes. And, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience to sit at that desk, you know, and he had this big lawyer's desk uh, with the glass over it. But, you know, photographs of him and Thurgood Marshall and Wiley Branton, and, mm. you know, all kinds of civil rights luminaries. And, you know, his collection was full of papers from uh, early NAACP leaders, you know, signed letters from Walter White and Thurgood Marshall in their early days of working with the NAACP. So that was quite a find, and that was, you know, an important part of the, the research that I got to do. And, you know, Stephanie still has those papers. They're still not in a in a public collection, but, uh, but they were a fantastic find for me. And, you know, so I had to do a, a lot of work just to find the sources to, to do the work to get the story written. Is when you moved to Little Rock, the social climate. Were you surprised? I mean, what what was it like, and how did really how did it affect your own thinking about civil rights, if any? Mm. Well, you know, I was just yeah, I was very new to me. The whole thing was very new to me, um, and I I was just kind of getting to term getting to grips then with you know the differences in American life to and, and, and British life. I mean, the thing that struck me most, I think, was the, you know the inability to get around anywhere without public transportation. I mean, that was the biggest obstacle. And I, talk, I spoke about driving down to Pine Bluff, and one of the first things I had to do when I got here was learn to drive. I couldn't drive, and I didn't own a vehicle. So I bought a vehicle and learned to drive while I was here in order to be able to get around to do the research that I needed to do. So that was the, the first obstacle I had to overcome. And, you know, learning to drive took up more time than I imagined it would before I could actually get to out to other areas to do the research that I need to do. So, yeah, I actually learned to drive in the United States, and that was part of the experience of, of that year. Well, I mean, as far as your own personal life, is, do you want to comment on any differences or similarities, I mean, uh, that you found here? Uh, or mm. You know, I was oblivious to a lot of it. And, I, you know, I think... Um, yeah, you know, going back to my parents and that sort of uh, response that they had of just, you know, treating people the same and not really seeing color. You know, in some ways, I was 
naively colorblind about it all. You know, I wasn't as conscious of about it as I probably should have been. And if I had been, I might have approached it in a different kind of way and I might be more self-conscious about it. But I think I was just pretty young then. You know, I was still 21 years old and, you know, just dumb enough and ignorant enough about the whole thing just not to really think about it too much. And I didn't, you know, if I'd have thought about it more, I might have approached it in a different kind of way. But, you know, this was kind of like a job. You know, I'd taken on this uh, task of doing a PhD and this was the thesis uh, topic that I'd chosen. And, you know, I didn't really think twice about it. I didn't think yeah. too much about it. I just went out and kind of did it. So, you know, if I thought about it more, I'd have been more conscious of it. But in some ways, that kind of naivety and that lack of consciousness about what I was doing and, you know, the racial climate around it, um, you know, was in some ways a good thing, I think. You know, I, I just got on with doing the writing the piece that I was writing and you know looking back now it's it's amazing just how oblivious I was to the larger context and of course I've learned more and more about that as, as time has gone on as far as uh, p private school from the, the, this whatever's going on in Little Rock now how would you uh, characterize what is your perception of what is happening Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I moved here. Yeah, you know, I taught in the UK. Um, I taught at um, University of Wales for five years first, and then finished and what my did book you teach? There. American history. Okay. Yeah, American history, and particularly civil rights. Specialized in civil rights, African American, uh, Southern history. Um, finished up my the book of my thesis there. Spent five years there. Then, um, you know, spent eleven years then at the University of London. And then, uh, you know, in 2010, six years ago, uh, saw the job advertised at UALR for the chair of the history department. And that's when I moved over um, to the United States. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. The um, been an interesting time then. I think, you know, um, living in the United States and living in Little Rock and, you know, raising a family um, here has given me a whole different set of insights, you know, firsthand into something that I've studied for a long time from a distance, you know, and I've been going shuttling backwards and forwards to the United States and the UK quite often and spent fairly significant chunks of time here, in, you know, several six month stretches. Um, but living here on a permanent basis and having to make a permanent home here. And, you know, particularly put in my daughter through public school system here. Uh, you know, she was four or five years old when we got here. So she started school <coughs> at kindergarten. So it, it gives you a whole different sense of having to live that and, you know, having such a personal attachment to it and deal with all those kinds of things, you know, that you become more immersed and conscious of the shaping forces of American life and all those kinds of things in a way that you're not. Uh, when you're not living there on a permanent basis. So it, it's been kind of interesting in terms of, you know, having done all this study from a distance and knowing about race relations, reading about race relations and me, becoming an expert, you know, in, in theory, I guess. But having that has been really useful. And uh, now it's kind of a fascinating uh, intellectual experience in many ways just to now come from that context but actually be living in it on a day-to-day -day basis and raising, you know, having a family and raising a child in that context, you know, and having that understanding of it, but then having to deal with the day-to-day -day realities of it and how those two brush up against one another are pretty fascinating. And I know you've just spoken about it, but is there a way to articulate the differences? I mean, I think it's fascinating that you had this intellectual experience, now you're living it. Mm. What what has changed other than the the difference of, well, I'm, I'm here and it has, has it made you question or has it reinforced whatever you learned before as a kind of an intellectual studying this? I think it's just made me more aware of it and it's made the things that I talk about and that I study more tangible. That is, they have a more direct day-to-day -day burn and relevance on my own life. And I can see, you know, see and feel it play out as well at the same time and feel what it's like to... Um, be in a situation where you have to address those issues. You know, having a child here in school, you're forced to deal with those issues firsthand. And, you know, they, they become personal in a way that they weren't before. 
and you know you have to think about um, you know what's going on because race and you know what's happening to public schools is, affects everyone and um, now affects me directly having a child who's in those schools who's going through the school system at the time that things are happening in it so I'm you know I'm much more personally invested in it now than I was in the past I guess all right did any of that your personal experience did it make you question any of the conclusions that you reached in your research or did it reinforce them or did you feel like you'd done a credible job with your research and you said this is what it, it's like and I've, I've nailed it or um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, um, the decisions that we made while we've been here have been consistent with that research. I th certainly feel, you know, more informed about what's going on in the city and the schools and more aware of it, having done that research, than I would have done if I hadn't have done that research. And, you know, um, certainly made a, a conscious decision um, that, you know, I'm particularly... And my daughter just started this fall at Horace Mann and has just moved up to elementary school, uh, uh, sorry, junior school, from elementary to, to junior school. And, you know, you go through all, all those decisions, which is a critical uh, point in the school process here. Of where do we send our daughter to next? What's best for her? You know, then you have to kind of face those decisions. And, you know, um, what is kind of striking, I think, is, you know, how much you pick up just from the ether of, you know, how stigmatized public schools are here, how often public schools are put down here, you know, how much uh, you are made to question, you know, how good education is in public schools and how tempting it is to look at private schools or charter schools, alternatives to public schools, the range of options that are, that are there for you. Um, but, you know, I... Thankfully, um, you know, um, my daughter went to several places and checked them out and, you know, did shadowing and we let her lead us and guide us as to what was best for her. And she really loved Horace Mann. And, you know, and I'm delighted that, you know, she's going to a public school because I, you know, as I said, from my upbringing, um, public services, public schools, I've always... Uh, been the way that I went and I've been a very strong supporter of them always because I realize and understand the opportunities that they gave me you know I didn't have very many opportunities growing up my parents weren't particularly wealthy and you know public services and public schools were incredibly important to me in being able to get out of the place that I was at and you know do things and see things and sort of you know become the first college educated person in my family and go into, you know, open up careers and possibilities that my parents and the, you know, previous members of my family have never had. And I certainly feel obligated and supportive of those systems that help me too. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons I support public services and public schools is just how influential they were in my own life. I know how important they were to me and how much they helped me. And, you know, I feel invested in them and feel an obligation to be invested in them because of that. Wanted to ask you also about some of the research. Uh, did, did, have you written extensively about Winthrop Rockefeller or what can you tell us about that? Mm. Well, it's one of the projects that I'm uh, working on at the moment, um, you know, a, a biography of Winthrop Rockefeller. And uh, that grows out of the, you know, the material I've worked on in the past and the, the research that I've done on uh, the civil rights movement. You know, I, I guess I started my PhD in the fall of 91, so this would make it 25 years since I started doing that research. So uh, 25 years of research uh, on Arkansas history and civil rights that I've done. And this is kind of uh, an outgrowth of that. And I was fascinated about the role that uh, Winthrop Rockefeller played in race relations and the story that I was writing, you know, particularly fascinated that um, a Republican governor, first Republican governor Arkansas elected in uh, in over 90 years was so progressive. You know, I grew up in the era in the 1980s of Reaganism uh, here and Thatcherism in the, in the um, United Kingdom where, you know, politics lurched towards the right. And to find a liberal Republican in the South was another kind of curiosity to me, and particularly one that was 
um, you know, so invested in race relations and played such a pivotal role in changing race relations. You know, having looked at all that, uh, it was kind of fascinating to think more broadly about uh, the changes that were taking place in Arkansas and how somebody like Winthrop Rockefeller was a pivotal figure in ushering those changes through. So, yeah, a kind of outgrowth of that and an approach to social and racial change in Arkansas in a different kind of way, in a different kind of perspective, you know, that's that's uh, one of the things that I'm working on now. And talking about Winthrop Rockefeller, and correct me if I'm wrong, somebody I have the memory that is progressive as he was, there were still things like that my memory and correct me again is if that he opposed the 1964 civil rights mm -hmm. public accommodations to help you That's talk right, about yeah. that yeah uh, you know interesting figure and you know we a different time for republican politics you know I mean, things changed just around the time that um that rockefeller was coming to office here in fact you know um, there's that more moderate strand of republicanism which Rockefeller represented, which they called in the 1960s Rockefeller Republicanism, named after his brother Nelson, who, of course, was the flagship holder for that. And in 1964, of course, Barry Goldwater beat Nelson Rockefeller for the nomination in the, uh, in the Republican Party, and that made a shift in the Republican Party to the, to the right, and kind of Winthrop Rockefeller came here just to, in the cusp of that, uh, the, the change that was happening. But certainly, you know, Rockefeller had sort of Republican values that we'd still recognize today as being sort of uh, less for kind of state interference. And that was the kind of basis on which he, you know, opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act because he thought it, you know, uh, it was too much federal government largesse and, and that kind of thing. So he kind of opposed the sort of federal solutions to that and was very much, you know, in favor of state. Uh, solutions, but actually also at the same time, actually pursued state uh, solutions for it, you know, and was proactive in actually trying to foster um, better race relations, you know, and one of the most important things he did, of course, was to beat Jim Johnson uh, in the election in 1966, 50 years ago this fall. Um, and Johnson was the last of the old guard segregationists who the Democrats put up against Rockefeller. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, you would think that Johnson, as a good old Arkansas segregationist credentials uh, person, would have beat uh, Winthrop Rockefeller, who represented, you know, outsider, northern, liberal, rich, wealthy interests. But, uh, but the Arkansas people chose a different way at that time, a different path, and the black vote was crucial to it. In fact, you know, on the white vote alone, Johnson won the election. Black votes made the difference for Rockefeller, and his political success owed much to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's work in the state and the Southern Regional Council and the voter projects that were run in the 60s and the growth of the black vote, and, you know, Rockefeller helped and assisted in that as well. So, you know, he uh, he knew that that constituency was important to him and made every effort to um, appeal to that constituency. But also when he got into office, um, hold true, held true to his promises. And particularly, I think, you know, uh, his uh, appoint, appointments uh, were really important in his term in office, you know, appointing African-Americans to jobs in state government, but also appointing uh, African-Americans to... Uh, top jobs in, in state government, too. You know, particularly noteworthy is his appointment of uh, William Sonny Walker as head of the uh, Office of Economic Opportunity in the state, the first African-American to be head of uh, the War on Poverty organization, which, you know, dealt with the war on poverty in the state uh, and appointed a lot of African-Americans for the first time to state committees, uh, which introduced African-Americans to positions of power and influence, you know, for the first time. And then later on, after just after Rockefeller left office, of course, the first African-Americans were elected to the Arkansas General Assembly in the elections of 72. So Rockefeller really played a pivotal role in desegregating government in Arkansas. And would you comment on uh, Rockefeller's pardoning of, uh, I can't remember how many men were on, death row would you talk about that a little yeah i'm trying to remember myself now 14 17 i can't remember the exact number uh, but somewhere around there and one of the last things he did in office 
was to uh, pardon everyone who were not pardon, commute the sentences of everyone who was on death row because he fervently uh, did not believe in the death sentence and did it as an act of you know personal conscience, um, cleared out death row. And, you know, uh, there were mo no more executions in Arkansas for a good 20 years after after that. And, of course, that factored into race relations, too, because the majority of, uh, of men, they were all men who were on uh, death row at the time, were African-American. So that, you know, was both a controversy in terms of uh, the death penalty, but also controversy in terms of race relations, too. And, you know, we know from the letters that Rockefeller received that race played a role in the criticisms that he received for doing that. So, you know, he, um, I think uh, I was uh, listening to the uh, Cal's podcast uh, from a few weeks ago and, they, you know, they were talking, uh, they had that uh, forum on politics in the 70s and Ernest Dumas uh, said that, you know, Rockefeller was probably the most liberal governor Arkansas ever had. And, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that the most liberal governor arguably he'd ever had was a Republican. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, Rockefeller was was fascinating, you know. He, he flip flopped on busing and the issue of busing in the in the election in 1970, and that cost him a lot of votes too. So he was no by no means a a kind of typical typical liberal civil rights person at the time, but somebody who was certainly interested in race relations. And you know, one of the things that's of interest to me and that I found interesting doing the research on him is that that was a long-standing commitment too. And you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in my biography of Rockefeller is to really bring together the two halves of his life. You know, he spent 40 years living in New York and then 20 years here in Arkansas. But, you know, all of all the stuff that's been written about him, it, the predominant focus is on Arkansas and it's almost as if his life in New York never happened. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about doing the research is just how separate those two halves of his life were and are still perceived today. You know, it's when you go to New York, and I've done research in the Rockefeller family archives there and spoke to members of the Rockefeller family there and experts on the Rockefeller family there. And it's amazing how oblivious they are to his life in Arkansas and what he did and his achievements uh, there, here. And at the same, by the same token, it's amazing how, you know, how little people know about what Rockefeller did in New York before he came here. You know, there's, there's two very separate sides to his life. But, you know, Rockefeller got interested in race relations from a very early age and he was uh, a board member of the National Urban League from the late 1930s up until the mid-1960s. So, you know, he was a board member for a long time on there and was involved in race relations in all different kinds of ways. So when he came to Arkansas, he brought a long-standing interest in various ways uh, of uh, race relations with him. When you go back to England now, how often do you get back? I try and get back at least once a year. My folks still live over there, of course, so I need and to visit them. From your standpoint of living in the United States, how has what has been your perception when you go back? It's, can you talk about what it's like to go back and how race fits into it and immigration? Mm. I, yeah, it, it's odd. You know, I, the more I live here, the more familiar it is, of course, to me. And the longer I'm here, the less familiar uh, going back to the UK is to me. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. You go back on a yearly basis and uh, things move on there. And you kind of, you know, I've lived there for long enough to be able to understand the context. But yet small things, you know, the day-to-day -day things that you miss kind of creep up on you. And, you know, I guess the, the most recent thing, uh, most recent headlines from the UK have been the whole issue of Brexit and how immigration has, has driven that and, you know, the kind of anti-immigrant sentiment that's uh, risen, I think, again, in the wake of that. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is fascinating in that context. Uh, you know, it's also fascinating that I, I was part of a generation of, uh, of people, uh, you know, there were quite a few civil rights scholars um, who were my in my peer group who were you know phd students of tony badger he retired fairly recently and you know um nurtured through an entire generation of civil rights historians and american historians and there were a bunch of us working on civil rights history 
but only more recently has you know and we're still in that period of, of black british history being rediscovered you know i think britain now is only you know beginning to rediscover uh the influence of black british history and immigrant history uh in the united kingdom and it is only really kind of becoming conscious of that you know and, and that field of black british studies is still only really emerging and i think you know part of it is uh, the outgrowth of african-american studies departments here and black studies departments here and, and britain is always sort of lagged behind for various reasons in various ways uh having the kind of racial consciousness um that's that's the that in the same way it is here partly because the black population has been smaller partly because it uh grew at a much uh later period than it did in the united states you know although britain was part of the slave trade that trade passed through britain and didn't you know stay there it wasn't part of the fabric of that and immigration in the united kingdom and you know the in influx of uh, black immigrants and people of color from the commonwealth didn't really begin on any sizable scale until the 1950s and, and 60s so it's you know it's something that has been smaller and that there's been a more recent development so i guess that kind of makes sense that britain is much later to dealing with those issues than the united states has been have your parents' attitudes changed in the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years or 30 years? Or I mean, do you see a change in their own political attitudes has been in, in any way? I, or? Not very much, no. I don't think they've changed very much uh, at all, really. Um, uh, you know, and it's, I think, you know, the aware of the work that I do and the fact that I've worked on racial relations and race and ethnicity and to some extent that's made them more conscious about it you know and if they see a television program on Martin Luther King they'll probably watch it and be more conscious of it and pay more attention to it because they know the stuff that I do but uh, not not drastically no and you know Whitworth hasn't changed very much where I grew up it's still pretty uh, not very not particularly diverse you know it's still a kind of uh, kind of semi-rural place uh but but you know rochdale the nearest town has got a lot more diverse uh, a lot more uh, influx of immigrant population you know um a lot of the places around where i live uh, that northwest uh, post-industrial uh, cities uh have become pretty cheap places to live and that's attracted you know immigrant populations to them those immigrant populations have kind of swelled and you know noticeably uh, certainly Rochdale and Manchester are, are far more diverse now today than even when I was growing up there. So things, you know, the complexion has changed and it, it's, uh, you know, it is kind of fascinating um, to see those changes and, you know, just the changes on the landscape. You know, you go back home and there are mosque domes and crescents on the landscape now where once there weren't. So, you know, the physical landscape is changing, the population is changing uh you know uh, there, there's there's more immigration and uh, you know in some ways uh i think you know brexit is sort of uh, a backlash to that just as you know i, I in some ways the the kind of backlash that i experienced in the 1970s with the na resurgence uh, emergence of the national front and those organizations as you know immigration increased during that period in some ways is kind of cyclical return to that in some ways that i recognize uh coming through again Turning back to your own work here in in the United States, what of your books and research is there a theme that you've been able to discern or a pattern, or you want to comment on mm. some of the other work you've done? Yeah, you know, my main theme, I guess, my main thesis has pretty much stayed the same for the last 25 years, and that is, you know, been boiled more and more down to the fact that, you know, there is more to the history of the civil rights movement in Arkansas than just the events in uh, Central High School in 1957. And, you know, so much of Arkansas racial history and so much of Arkansas history, I think, you know, focuses so intently on that one event Um because it was so important, because it reverberated nationally and internationally. But, you know, there is such a 
bigger, wider, richer, more diverse history of the civil rights movement here that's really been forgotten and overlooked and, you know, ignored uh, because of that. So it's had a paradoxical effect. So all, all the kind of discussion on race and ethnicity seems to have been in that box of Central High School. You know, I spent the last 25 years trying to unpack that box and put that event in a much wider context and write the wider history of the civil rights struggles that have taken place in the state and demonstrate that, you know, everything that happened everywhere else in the South also happened in Arkansas, whether it be the Freedom Rides or sit-ins or other demonstrations after the 60s or, you know, when it happened in the 1940s and the emergence of the NAACP. So that much, you know, richer, longer history of the civil rights movement that's there. Um, but, you know, in terms of Arkansas, it's a kind of interesting state uh, to study, I think, in terms of race relations because it's right on the edges of the South and, uh, you know, it has this sort of dual history in many ways. You know, it has that kind of lower southeastern part of it, which, which you know, next to the Mississippi River and the Arkansas Delta has a history very much akin to the Mississippi Delta across the river from it but which in the northwest part of the state has an entirely different kind of history, which borders the, you know, the west and the midwest, and there's an entirely different kind of racial history there. So Arkansas is a very kind of varied and sort of interesting pattern of race relations. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who grew up in the Arkansas Delta, I've always felt like we were really in the south, not just on the edge of it. Mm. Is the Delta different, do you think, the Arkansas Delta, than... I mean, how has it played out historically mm. as opposed to, to Little Rock or the rest of the state? Yeah, I'd agree with you. You know, I think the history of the Arkansas Delta is very much uh, in common with the rest of the so-called, you know, Lower South or Deep South and is much in common with the Mississippi Delta that's across from it, you know. But the, 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 the issue, I guess, with the Arkansas Delta has been that all the attention and focus goes to Mississippi because it's seen as the most, you know, and the poorest state in the union and, you know, the worst race relations. And, you know, so much has been written. I think probably more has been written about race relations in Mississippi Delta than any other place in the United States. And in some ways, that's always been the problem in Arkansas, that, you know, the Arkansas Delta gets overlooked because all the attention goes to Mississippi. And at the same time, Arkansas has kind of used that to its advantage, I think. It's always, you know... Um, I remember uh, interviewing Edwin Dunaway, who was an attorney here in town, and him talking about this and saying, you know, uh, the, the, the apocryphally, you know, the state's license plate in the 1950s was, uh, you know, thank God for Mississippi. For Mississippi. Yeah. And, that you know, all the attention has been put there. And it's been an easy way of deflecting attention from race relations in the Arkansas Delta and what's happening in Arkansas. And, so, and, you know, there's always that kind of fascinating defense from Arkansans that, you know, we're not Mississippi and we're not, you know, we're only the, the second worst state in the union and therefore, you know, we shouldn't, we know nothing to see here. And there's, you know, always that kind of fast and loose that's fascinating in Arkansas. You know, you see that after, you know, in the in the 50s with Brain versus Board of Education in the 1960s where they say, well, we're not really a southern state. We're a west, you know, we're a western state. You know, we, we're not like the rest of the south and they want to avoid the sanctions that are, when they want to avoid the sanctions that are being placed on the rest of the south, they say, oh, we're not southern, we're Midwest. You know, this is nothing to see here. But of course, at the same time, when they want to, uh, when Forbes wants to rally segregationists at Central High, he, you know, he says, oh, we stand solid with the rest of the solid South and plays, you know, we are a Southern state and plays to all that as well. So Arkansas has always kind of had that fascinating, fast and loose with race relations and where it situates itself and whether it stands with the South or whether it's not a Southern state or not. And, you know, that kind of fast and loose has always been fascinating the way that it's tried to portray itself in terms of race relations. And that, I think, makes it kind of unique in a lot of ways. In your opinion, what is, has white supremacy been the motivating factor for much of Arkansas's history, or what's your feeling about that term? Is that relevant anymore, or what? I think so. I mean, it's very, it's been a very important term um, and a very important concept. Uh, in part, I think also because of the particular demographics of Arkansas. You know, Arkansas both percentage-wise and numerically, has always had one of the lowest African-American populations in the South. And so, you know, white, the white majority and white supremacy have been written into the fabric of the state. And, you know, I think what's interested me and which, you know, what has only kind of 
perhaps dawned on me more recently in my research because you know I was looking for the history of the civil rights movement. I was looking for what was there, and I was trying to find out, you know, the, uh, looking at black activism and what happened. I guess in many ways, one of the things that I missed for a long time is that perhaps one of the most decisive responses of African-Americans in Arkansas to conditions here was to simply leave. And, you know, Arkansas suffered population loss, uh, uh, both white and African-American, but particularly African-American, more heavily proportionally than many other southern states. And that's been uh, a difficulty for this for the African-American population and civil rights in Arkansas because, you know, that population has continued to shrink. And the more that population shrinks, the less of a base for mobilization there is, the less of a population there is for, you know, to uh, enforce voting power, to less population there is to have a voice. And that, you know, has significantly and continues to significantly shape Arkansas. You know, Arkansas remains the only former Confederate state to have never elected an African-American to statewide or federal office. And that population drain is part of that. So you have a state that, you know, has this legacy of fraught race relations and a history of white supremacy, but because of a dwindling African-American population has never really, in many ways, been able to address that, not just in terms of hard politics, but in memory, in terms of representation, in terms of voice, in a way that other deep south states have. So other deep south states that have retained large black populations you know, have been able to use that to elect African-American populations and to have African-American history represented. So Arkansas has kind of had it both ways, you know. They have this history, but because of the way the demographics have worked out and because of this dwindling African-American population and African-Americans have chosen to move out of the state, there's less and less of a voice and less and less of a base and capacity to redress that past and those those things. So, you know, that that is one of the things that I think makes Arkansas fascinating and unique in terms of its race relations among its southern neighbors. Would you comment on uh, your uh, now directorship of the Joely Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity and uh, at the UALR? Would you t talk about what, how it's changed or, or just give us an overview or your ideas and plans for it or what? Yeah, um, you know, the Institute, Anderson Institute, as it is now, uh, was the brainchild of former Chancellor Joel Anderson. Um, when he became Chancellor 13, 14 years ago now, he made race. And UILO being the uh, keeper of the flame on race relations, uh, central to his administration, and, you know, held this Chancellor's Committee on Race and Ethnicity uh, group of staff and faculty and periodically students too and community members who would meet Monday afternoons and discuss issues of race and ethnicity. And that was really the crucible for the idea of the uh, Anderson Institute to be formed. And I came here in 2010, just a year before the Institute was launched. So I was here right from the beginning as you know that process of gearing up for the launch of the Institute came along. And so I've been here for the entirety of its life and seen it kind of grow and develop and took over as director just last August. So I've been here for what, about a, a year now, um, coming on board and, you know, I've inherited programs from that. The Arkansas Civil Rights Heritage Trail is an important part of what we do. And, you know, it's a annual ceremony in which we have markers that commemorate African-American history. And, you know, those original, the first set were are outside the uh, old state house and the markers ultimately will hopefully stretch all the way down to the uh, Clinton Presidential Library and up the other side of the street. So that's been an annual thing. Uh, Joel Anderson initiated the uh, racial attitudes in Pulaski County survey, which uh, UALR does every year. And we inherited that and inherited kind of overseeing that and the conference for that. So that's another one of the regular things we do. We worked uh, last year with the City of Little Rock to produce uh, Arkansas Civil Rights History Tour app, which you can go to and download and take a history tour uh, around Little Rock in the first instance. And there are 35 sites on there, which gives you a guided tour of, of uh, not only the history we talked about in terms of Central High, but that longer history of the civil rights movement in the city and in the state. Um, We've sponsored lots of speakers and continue to sponsor a speaker program and bring, bring people uh, into town uh, through that. Um, and I think, you know, it's an important thing. 
because of the thing we were just talking about, you know, that it's one of the things that's easy in Arkansas is just not to talk about race and ethnicity at all. You know, it's a struggle just to keep it on the agenda here because of it has a smaller, you know, black population than many other places. So just uh, have it uh, acknowledged as a particular part of the university and have it named as a part of the university's function and have that institutionalized is a really important critical part of just acknowledging that Arkansas deals with those issues of race and ethnicity and keeps it, you know, literally and figuratively on, on the agenda and in the focus of what the university does and what happens in the city and what happens in the state. So I think just having a space that represents those interests and a space where people can go to both from within the university and outside of those university uh, and, you know, our, our communications with, with you know, um, community and external constituents is important as well. So I think, you know, its existence is is an important thing and testimony to, you know, that the, the history of race and ethnicity in Arkansas shouldn't be forgotten and is there on the agenda and should remain there on the agenda. Okay. All right. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Is there anything you want to talk about in particular that uh, we hadn't touched on? I mean, I suspect we could go on for hours, mm. but... I mean, specifically, what else would you like to add? Uh, we could quite a bit of stuff in, a, in an hour and gone over a lot of things. I guess we could go deeply into a whole bunch of them. But, uh, yeah, I think we touched a lot of the bases um, that I, I would have touched on. Uh, you know, I, um, I think, you know, I guess one of the interesting things uh, in terms of my research when I was over here was interviewing people and kind of interacting with people who lived through the civil rights movement. And a lot of people now, you know, I look back on those list of people I interviewed and a lot of them just aren't here anymore. So I was glad I got to capture their histories, in many cases, the only oral histories that they did uh, while they were here. And, um, and that was a fascinating dynamic too, you know, that coming at this with a British background and an outsider's perspective uh, gives you a fascinating sort of insight, I think, a different perspective. I'm not, you know, wholly sure um, how you tease that out from American perspective, but the distance it gives you and the kind of inroads it gives you is, is quite interesting. You know, I, particularly when I went to interview um, African-American uh, people for my book, you know, they were as fascinated as as to why I was working on what I was working on as I was fascinated in their life stories, too. And that kind of gave an important inroads uh, as well. So, you know, that that whole experience has been pretty interesting. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. You're welcome. Thanks very much.